This week on the show, we have a wrong way to switch server OSs for you. Net 1 and Net 2, a path to freedom article about the FreeBSD history. Permissions, uh, two mistakes that people make more often than not sometimes. OpenBSD progress in supporting the RISC-5 64 uh, platform. I2P intro, a Gitsync murder is out and... We mentioned Michael's uh, number of books he's written over the years. Ghost BSD in its system poll results and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 415 wrong OS switch. Recorded on the 28th of July 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome to this week's episode of BSD Now. And as vaccinations in the world go up, I really have to say this Windows 11 really looks nice. And why don't we, you know rename this podcast to, you know, Windows Now or Microsoft Now in the future, right? But, but Benedict, we don't um, cover any Windows content. Oh, we don't? No. Oh, then it must be the <laughs> it must be the shot that I got that made me switch. Um, <laughs> okay, never mind. We'll stay with BSD for a while. Uh, <laughs> but this headline here might be interesting for you if you are on the switching side, coming from either one way or the other. So it uh, is titled The Wrong Way to Switch Operating Systems on Your Server. And it's tied into our sponsor a little bit, uh, into Tarsnap, but let's start at the beginning. Uh, uh, here, Fickbird in his blog uh, writes, after moving my server to Hetzner, I built a large collection of self-hosted services I use on a daily basis, from fun things like an RSS reader and an IRC bouncer to critical services like my email. I ran them all with Docker Compose from a Debian VPS. Don't worry, this is not This is a little bit Linux heavy, but not too much. It can be applied to many other um, operating systems as well. So for the last months, however, I've been meaning to move away from Debian, here we go, and towards something more minimal and clean. Over this last weekend, I decided to move to Alpine Linux. Uh, the plan, the transition was supposed to be quick and dirty. First, shut down all the services running on my VPS. Second, make a backup of relevant files with Tarsnap. Third, mount Alpine Virtual ISO image and set up the OS. Four, uh, restore the files from the Tarsnet backup. And five, bring everything back up. And of course, you can switch the operating systems. It's basically the same for uh, the others as well, as long as there's a Tarsnet client available. And, it's, and it is. In a previous move between two servers, I simply rsync the relevant files over to the new VPS. Here, where I'm just switching operating system on a single server, I figured I could make a backup with Tarsnap and be done with the day. However, backups are much more complex than simply transferring files from one server to another. My haphazard strategy resulted in three days of stress and frustration as I clambered to restore a self-hosting empire that I myself had reduced to ash. Ooh. So day one. I began my work on a transition full of optimism, uh, if a bit stressed. I had read through the Tarsnap online documentation excellent source, uh, a number of times and was ready to make my first attempt. So I loaded my Tarsnap account up with $10 and ran Tarsnap minus C minus lowercase f, then the backup name and then the Docker Compose YAML file and any other files you wanted to backup. Um, my terminal sat empty for hours. There were no changes. The process was running. 
but there was no feedback. I was nervous. What if I fail silently? How can I check? What should I do? I pressed Ctrl-C. To my horror, stats printed to the screen. The backup had been 90% complete and I had stopped it. Convinced I had ruined the backup completely, I deleted the partial backup from Tarsnap and started again from scratch. This was my first but not last moment close to tears. I went to sleep and let the backup run overnight. Day two. <laughs> Sounds like a horror story, um, but it has a happy ending. Day two began as well. Uh, I woke and the backup was finished. I wiped the VPS, installed Alpine and brought it up to spec. I created a regular user, configured SSH and decided to use DoS instead of sudo for a change. Alpine so far feels great to use, none of the craft that bothered me when using Debian. So virgin tarsnap with Alpine setup, I started to restore the backup. Tarsnap minus X minus F and the backup name. So it's, that's the reverse. Once again, after running uh, all day, it had not finished. I opened up a new Tmux window and poked around the file system. All my files seemed like they were already there. What if I fail silently? How can I check? What should I do? So this is talking to himself. <laughs> I pressed Ctrl-C, cutting off the download and tried to bring everything back online. So Docker Compose up or whatever he, uh, you, you are running. It arrowed out. All my environment variables were undefined. Then it hit me. I forgot to back up the .n file. My eyes welled up. Still, I was determined. I worked to reconstruct the .env file from the secrets I had stored in Bitwarden, my offline copy, because my vault is self-hosted and was thus down. Then ran it again, docker compose up. One of my services was missing a docker file to build. I couldn't have pressed Ctrl-C. I was a total moron. I put on a sad song. I was close to tears once again. Yeah, because then you realize what you are missing and what you forgot in the, in the original backup. I gathered what was left of my resolve and trudged onward. I searched Tartsnap man page looking for something to speed up my download. I found a number of flags that could have helped me make a backup better the next time around, but nothing that would have helped me restore the backup any faster. With nothing in the man page, I went to look at the helper scripts. So there's a, a red snapper uh, from a guy called Chad. Chad's red snapper. That's when I found it. A Ruby script that runs multiple Tarsnap clients at once to extract archives fast. FS checking precisely. I wiped uh, out the incoming, uh, the incomplete files I had restored, downloaded Ruby and started restoring from the backup once again. So it's Red Snapper and then the backup name instead of Tarsnap. I changed the song and watched the flies fly by on my screen. No, oh, the, the files, not the flies. Sorry, the files, because it's much faster now. I went to sleep confident I would wake to good news. Day three. The download had failed trying to download a large.mkv file. Mm, yeah. Then there's a little subsection about manual exclusion. Yeah, so first read the man page before doing the backup. Okay, that's the learning here. I restarted Red Snapper, explicitly excluding the MKV. It had failed to download. I let it run until it came on another movie and crashed again an hour or so later. I excluded the second movie file and sent it to run again. This was a long, boring process. It sucked. An afternoon breakthrough... Then I realized something. Red Snapper kept crashing when it hit movies I had stored in Jellyfin. Um, yeah, so there's a little side note about uh, why do I need Jellyfin at all here or why do I need to download movies because I can download again later. I stopped the download in the middle, the day's third, after two earlier attempts that ended after encountering movie files and changed the command slightly before rerunning. After a number of errors I couldn't explain, I realized my account was negative and topped up with another $25 before running with the exclude flag. Yes, you don't want to have anything in Jellyfin uh, directories. That should speed it up significantly. Okay, so this is 
tar snap or red snapper <laughs> applying the proper options. I returned to my computer a couple hours later. Red snapper had stopped within a whole lot of files extracted and a couple arrows at the bottom about symlinks. Hmm, I figured this time it had probably done everything properly but couldn't create the file symlinks. Probably a flag missing somewhere. I manually went through my files creating the symlinks and then brought everything up with Docker Compose. Checked all the containers, they're up. I checked the logs, no immediate errors visible. And then his block came back up again. Service was restored. Hallelujah. So he had a list of mistakes here. So you probably have figured out just listening. Um, but yeah, it's it's if you're using a new service and it's if you're not too shy to try it out, um, then things could happen. Uh, so first, well, after shutting down my containers, I backed up my entire setup. This included a number of live databases, .git folders, and other data that I had not needed or could reconstruct once the move had been complete. Yeah, then second, I didn't back up the .env file I used to store secrets for the use in the Docker Compose, uh, but could restore it from a different setup. That's good. Thorough read of the man pages before I started rather than just the online guides would have revealed several helpful flags. Minus V, for example, to see what files Tarsnap is operating on. Dash dash aggressive minus networking to take advantage of the data center internet speeds. And dash dash recover to resume interrupted backups to not start from the beginning again, to name a few. So we're all like, brouhaha, no, this is really learning and we're uh, all better for it because we don't have to miss to make the mistakes uh, again. Yeah, so nice write-up. Um, sorry it uh, went so bad for you, but hopefully you are still using the, the services and you might never have um, encountered Red Snapper before hitting those snacks here and there. This is a, this is a great blog post. Uh, I'd never considered using Tarsnap for uh, host migration. Uh, this does seem a very yeah, high yeah, consequence I mean, way to test your backups. Right. It's um, it's definitely encrypted. It's definitely important to do. Yeah, uh, but, but uh, you should really <laughs> check first. Not yeah. just make backups, test them somewhere before wiping your system you're backupping. Yeah, that, that's the scary part to me. And I guess uh, it it doesn't leverage as uh, Tarsnap's pricing structure very well if you are backing up loads of videos and pulling them over the yeah. network but yeah no it's right. really cool and it's a really nice take uh, and i look forward to seeing more stuff from this person because uh, i i might have just given up the first time put on the sad song gone to bed yeah he has uh provided stamina and, and showed after three days it, it still got got him where he wanted to be instead of giving up after the first <laughs> cool okay the yes. the next article we have is uh another on the clara systems uh blog uh and it's part of their history of freebsd series and it is part five net one and net two a path to freedom and at this point we're definitely talking about uh history of bsd rather than just freebsd um and it starts with an author's note and i love the author's note because it's it's just how we all learn uh Author's note, so far this history has been jumping around a little bit. That's my fault. I'm learning about the history of BSD as we go along. I'm sure that a few of the more eagle-eyed BSD scholars have noticed the discrepancies, and I apologize for the jumping around. Uh, and I I think it's great to, to recognize that you're jumping around and see that unless you were there, it's really difficult to have a linear view of, of what happened because the important points are not always uh, the most interesting points. Um, with that in mind, this article is going to cover the time period from the release of 4.3 BSD with TCP slash IP to the BSD lawsuits. This period set the stage for BSD as we know it being as we know it today. A new architecture. 4.3 BSD was released in June of 1986 with Barclays TCP IP code installed. An Information Week article declared that 
this release of BSD was the single greatest piece of software ever with the broadest impact on the world. At the time, the VAX architecture, which was used by a majority of DARPA projects, was getting long in the tooth. Initially, it looked like VAX would be replaced by uh, a new product from the Computer Consoles Incorporated uh, named Power 6 slash 32, and that's a catchy marketing name. Plans to replace VAX with Power 6 slash 32 were short-lived because CGI decided to go in a different direction. However, it did leave a big impact in the future of BSD. An engineer named Mike Sullivan was performing routine maintenance on Jurassic when he made a typo. With that keystroke, the server went down and a thousand engineers were stuck with left with nothing to do until the data was restored from backups. Now, the days of tape. Uh, Computer Consoles Incorporated provided Berkeley with several of their Power 632 machines to help with the porting process. As part of that process, Bill Joyce split the BSD kernel into machine-dependent and machine-independent parts. This work would make it much easier to port BSD to other architectures in the future. The results were released in June of 1988 as 4.3 BSD Tahoe. Tahoe was the codename for Power 6 32. Uh, interesting note, while the platform was short-lived, Pixar's computer animation group used a Power 6 32 machine to render part of 1985's Young Sherlock Holmes. Fancy that. Uh, DARPA had invested quite a bit of money into BSD to get networking and other features added, but that investment was only really benefited DARPA research partners. Anybody who wanted access to BSD and its network capabilities had to pay for an AT&T software license. After all, BSD contained proprietary AT&T code. That was because the BSD systems were never released by Berkeley in a binary-only format. The distributions always contained the complete source code to every part of the system. According to Kirk Bukusic, such a license would cost $250,000. Uh, as a result of the exorbitant cost of the AT&T license, people started asking about the possibility of getting access to Ber only Berkeley's TCP IP networking code. With the increasing cost of AT&T source licenses, vendors wanted to build standalone uh, TCP IP based networking products for the PC market using BSD code, found the per binary costs prohibitive. In response, the networking code written by Berkeley and the supporting utilities were released as a standalone product. This took place in June of 1989. It was called Networking Release 1 or Net Slash 1, and it was the first freely redistributable code from Berkeley. Uh, compared to, to AT&T's products, the license on Net Slash 1 was downright liberal. Somebody bought a license could release the code without having to pay any royalties to Berkeley. The release code could be modified. The only stipulation was that the original copyright notice had, the code notices had to be left in place and products based on, based on Berkeley code had to note in their documentation that it contained code from Berkeley. Also, unlike AT&T, Berkeley charged a relatively small license fee of $1,000, which still sounds like a lot of money today. The developers didn't think that they would sell very many companies, but they were, they were wrong. It was very popular. In the end, over a thousand people sent in their money to get a licensed copy. Since licensees could redistribute it, Net slash one was hosted on many FTP sites and spread from there. This was the first real BSD because it didn't contain any proprietary code. Uh, and then they continue talking about uh, uh, continued work uh, and how other memory systems were integrated into BSD uh, and how um, POSIX was created and integrated. Uh, and this led to an update. And uh, this update was released as 4.3 BSD Reno in July of 1990. 
This was an interim release design to test the changes that had been made thus far. And they quote, our goals in making this release available is to get feedback on any problems in the design or implementation of new facilities, as well as to allow adventurous sites to gain experience with these portions of 4.4 BSD. The announcement noted that this distribution is not intended to be used on production systems. The name Reno was a reference to the gambling center in Reno, Nevada. Thus installing it was considered a gamble. It also states the reason that this distribution is not labeled 4.4 BSD alpha is because it does not contain several major interfaces that we plan to have available for that distribution. Interesting side note from for me is that uh, many TCP congestion control algorithms are are named after casinos as well, and I don't think it's because they're gambling. Uh, I think they just they just want them to be named after that, and so we have the Reno congestion control, uh, the Vegas congestion control, where there's a lot of, a lot of casinos. Um, we also have the Prague congestion control, and we had to look really hard to make sure there was a casino in Prague, but thankfully there are. There are casinos <laughs> in Prague. Hey, we have a new algorithm and no casinos left. What do we do? Sadly, that, uh, casino. That, that tradition seems to have fallen apart, but it, 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 sounded, it sounded like a good one. I also sort of hope that's all made up, and I've been told a lie, but I, I like it either way. Um, from the popularity of Net1, the popularity of Net1 led to many people asking if they could release more code. After all, since Net1 consisted primarily of networking code, it was hardly a replacement for an entire Unix. Keith Bostick, one of the three BSD developers, pushed the idea of rewriting and replacing the proprietary AT&T code so they could release it to the public. The others told him it would be a lot of work and challenged him to find a way to get utilities and libraries rewritten. Bostick started one of the first crowdsourcing efforts to do just that. He solicited folks to rewrite the Unix utilities from scratch based solely on their published descriptions. Anyone who did this would not get paid. Instead, they would get their name listed among the Berkeley contributors next to the name of the utility they rewrote. For example, VI, which was based on the original Unix version of Ed, was rewritten as NVI, new VI. The project started slowly and was limited to simple utilities, and eventually more and more contributions came in. In the end, nearly all important utilities and libraries have been rewritten in 18 months. Um, they then did some work trying to tidy up the kernel, and in the end, there were only six files left that contained AT&T code. The BSD developers decided to release what they had. They went to the Berkeley administration to get permission to do so, and unfortunately had to go all the way to the top. Finally, the chancellor signed off after an independent audit of the code. In order to expedite the release, the developers decided not to come up with a new name because that would involve more times with the lawyers to get a new license. So they decided to release networking release two, net slash two, uh, since they were improving on it. And they shipped again for the $1,000 price. It didn't take long to get someone to replace the remaining six AT&T files. Um, I, as I understand, one of the conditions of the lawsuit was that the six problematic files couldn't be named. I actually think this is one of the conditions of the lawsuit. If you ever, if you look into the history of this, uh, you see that people say there were six files, like six things had to be replaced. Uh, but no one ever says what they were. Uh, it would be great to get to get Warner Losh to explain what is, what is going on there. Kirk would know, yeah. Yeah, but maybe Kirk can't tell you. <laughs> maybe he's bound by the, the rules. Um, yeah, but after so many uh, years now, isn't that... That these court things are now open. Oh, to the you like never know. Freedom of information and all that. Uh, after well, <laughs> after all of this, um, Bill Julitz replaced the six files and created three eight six BSD for personal computers. And shortly after, after a company called Berkeley Software Design Incorporated started selling uh, a commercial version of, of BSD, and unfortunately, BSDI caught AT and T's attention. 
and we got some more lawsuits. Uh, and if you'd like to know more about the history of BSD and the history of FreeBSD, they link to part two of their series. I guess this is part, uh, and they have more parts on Clara. And Clara seems to be writing a pretty coherent uh, uh, in introduction to the history of BSD and where the projects came from. I really like these articles. Mm. Yeah, they're well written, well researched as far as I can see. So yeah, we look forward to more like those. Uh, in our news roundup this week, we have a blog post from Chris Seibenman. Many of those we already covered, but this one is called Permissions to Mistakes. And this is something that could happen to pretty much anyone, even the longtime Unix users. So Chris writes, Today's state of work brain, mkdir slash temp slash fred, umask 077 slash temp slash fred. Immediately after these two commands, I hit cursor up, change the umask to change mod. So that uh, I then ran change mod 077 slash temp slash shred. Uh, fortunately, I was doing this uh, as a regular user, so my next action exposed my error. The whole sequence of commands is a set of mistakes jumbled together in a very Unix way. My goal was to create a new temp fred directory that was only accessible to me. My second command is not just wrong because I wanted change mod instead of umask. I should have run umask before the make dear, not after, but because because I had the wrong set of permissions for change mod. Uh, it was as if my brain wanted Unix to apply a umask 077 to the creation of slash temp slash red after the fact. Since the numeric permissions you give to umask are the inverse of the permissions you give to change mod, uh, you tell umask what you don't want instead of what you want to do, my change of umask to change mod then left temp fred with the completely wrong permissions. Instead of being only accessible to me, it was fully accessible to everyone except me. Had I been doing this as root, I would have been, oh yeah, been have then been able to CD into the directory, but put files in, access files in it, and so on. I might not have noticed that the permissions were reversed from what I actually wanted. Yeah, this is something that uh, web people have come up probably, that they, they shared probably everything on the web and not the system administrator can't get back to those, yeah. But going on, the traditional Unix umask itself is a very Unix command. Well, shell built in, uh, in that it more or less directly calls umask. Uh, it allows a very simple implementation, which was a priority in early Unixes like v7. A more sensible implementation would be that you specify effectively the maximum permissions that you want. For example, things can be 755. And then umask would invert this to get the value it uses for umask. But early Unixes took the direct approach, counting on people to remember the inversion and perform it in their heads. In the process of writing this entry, I learned that POSIX UMask supports symbolic modes and that they work this way. You get and set UMask mode like U equals RWX, G equals RX, O equals RX, aka 022, the traditional friendly Unix UMask. And they're the same permissions as you would use with change mod. I believe that the symbolic mode is supported by any modern born shell compatible, including the Z shell, but it isn't necessarily supported by non-born shells such as TCSH or RC. Yeah, there are other things like that, like mixing up, um, putting parameters from change mod to change own and vice versa, right? Change own uh, 077, some file, <laughs> or change mod uh, Benedict uh, colon Benedict uh, temp, whatever. Yeah, it, and that's why I like Ansible so much. You, in each task, I mean, these are three separate commands usually or two create a directory and then apply the 
proper users and the permissions. Uh, in, in Ansible, you can just pr provide one task and it does three things, but you can also say this task should create the file and it should change the user to that and the permissions to this. Oh, internally, it will probably resolve into three ind independent commands, but from the logic of how you write these, you say, here's a task, do this and change these permissions around it, and you don't have to put it into three separate things, create a task, create a file, another task, change the permissions, another task, change the owner, so it's all more compressed into one, and then you can follow up with the next one. Yeah, so these things uh, make Unix unique in... And I guess a lot of people have learned binary just to <laughs> provide the proper permissions. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't know why anyone else would ever have learned octal. Right? Yeah, it's so unusual. <laughs> uh, okay, so next up we have a, an article on uh, undeadly.org, the OpenBSD journal, and it comes from the still waiting for my hardware department, uh, and it is by Rudia. Um, since our previous report, uh, which we did cover on the show, there's been significant progress on support for RISC-5-64. Uh, there is now a web page for the platform, which actually seems really important, um, with details of the broadening, I'm going to say broadening, uh, hardware support for those lucky enough to have hardware. Um, and following some commits by Dale Ran, DRAN at, install sets now contain Zynocara, which is the OpenBSD fork of x11 um, and then following up in one of the comments there is a picture of Zynocara in action so there is a picture if you click through to the article um, of uh, OpenBSD running on RISC-5 64 on the Sci-5 unmatched board uh, with the X server going and that's a, a great little progress update and there's even another follow-up to that linked post which is on uh, bsd.network um, saying that all the code has now been committed and that there's now uh, hardware landing and there's support for Radeon DRM and GLX gears. Ah, that's awesome. That's great progress. <laughs> that's the old goal, that GLX gears running. Next up is Doom, right? Yeah. If that runs, everything runs. The ultimate stress test and then Doom. <laughs> and then, then development stops for some reason and we've never figured out why. Yeah, we, have, we can play the games now. Okay, let's, <laughs> let's stop here. <laughs> No, great efforts. I mean, RISC-V is, is a great platform and I think more people will uh, jump to it the more uh, open source operating systems will support it. Uh, remember our article from last week about I2P or um, Celine's article about the, um, uh, what was it called? IPFS? IPFS, we yeah. covered. Yeah. So Celine has another article here uh, writing using the I2P network with OpenBSD and Nixos. And it's an intro to I2P. So in this text, she will explain what is the I2P network and how to provide a service over I2P on OpenBSD and how to use to connect it to an I2P service from NixOS. So I2P, what's this for? This acronym stands for Invisible Internet Project and is a network over the network, the internet. It is quite an old project from 2003 and is considered stable and reliable. The idea of I2P is to build a network of relays, people running an I2P daemon, to make tunnels from a client to a server, but a single TCP session, or UDP, between a client and a server could use many tunnels of n hops across relays. Basically, when you start your I2P service, the program will get some information about the relays available and prepare many tunnels in advance that will be used to reach the destination when you connect. Some benefits of that. 
Your network is reliable because it doesn't take care of operator peering. Your network is secure because packets are encrypted and you can even use user encryption to reach your remote services, TLS, SSH. Provides privacy because nobody can tell where you are connecting to. It can prevent against habits tracking. If you also relay data to participate to I2P, bandwidth allocated is used at 100% of the time. And any traffic you do over I2P can't be discriminated from standard relay. And another benefit is it can only allow declared I2P nodes to access a server if you don't want anyone to connect to a port you expose. Ah, oh yeah. It is possible to host a website on I2P by exposing your web server port. It is called an uh, EAP site and can be accessed using the SOX proxy provided by your I2P daemon. I never played with them though, but this is a thing and you may be interested into looking more in depth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she provides a couple links to extra uh, documentation. Uh, then there's people like, hey, this is like Tor, right? So she has an, a section about that, I2P versus Tor. Obviously, many people would question why not using Tor, which seems similar. While I2P can seem very close to Tor hidden services, the implementation is really different. Tor is designed to reach the outside, while I2P is meant to build a reliable and anonymous network. When started, Tor creates a path of relays named the circuit that will remain static for an approximate duration of 12 hours. Everything you do over Tor will pass through the circuit, usually three relays. Uh, on the other hand, I2P creates many tunnels all the time with a very low lifespan. Small difference, I2P can relay UDP protocol while Tor only uses or supports TCP. Oh, okay. Uh, so apparently she's been running uh, a test over 10 hours to compare bandwidth usage of I2P and Tor to keep a tunnel uh, or hidden service available. Um, they have not been used, she writes. Please note that relaying transit were deactivated, so it's only the uploaded data in order to keep the service working. So I2P sent 55.47 megabytes of data in uh, 114,430 packets, total of 10 hours, 1.58 kilobits per second. Kilobits or bytes? Kilobytes per second, yeah. Bytes, yeah. That's important here. Uh, and Tor uh, sent 6.98 megabytes of data in 14,759 packets. And that's a total of just 0 0.20 kilobytes bit, kilobits <laughs> on average. Okay, so Tor was a lot more yeah, bandwidth efficient than I2P for the same task, keeping the network access uh, alive. Okay, uh, then she talks about quick explanation about how it works. Let's move on to OpenBSD because I think that's interesting uh, to, <laughs> to more people. Um, the setup is quite simple. We use I2PD and not uh, the I2P Java program. Uh, so you just do package underscore add I2PD on OpenBSD and then create a tunnels conf in etc I2PD. And that's where you put uh, there's a section about SSH and it has type equals server, port equals 22, obviously. Uh, a host is 127.0.0.1 and keys is ssh.dat and that's all the contents. Then you rctl enable i2pd and start the service. And then, yeah, then you, she moves on to NixOS and starts the service there, similar. And now you can use the NixOS rebuild switch as root to apply ah, yes, those changes. And that's, oh, that's pretty straightforward, really. And this config section is really small to just get started. Yeah, so then testing the setup, move the NixOS client. You should be able to run SSH minus P, the new port 2222, 
uh, on localhost and get access to the OpenBSD SSH server. Both systems have a uh, localhost colon uh, port 7070 interface because it's a default setting that is not bad, except if you have multiple people who can send, uh, who can access those uh, machines. Yeah, and in conclusion, she writes, I2P is a nice way to share services on a reliable and privacy-friendly network. It may not be fast, but shouldn't drop you when you need it. Yeah, reliability. Uh, because it can easily bypass NAT or dynamic IP, it's perfectly fine for a remote system you need to access when you can't. Yeah, when you can use can't use NAT or VPN. That's that should be a can't, right? Not a can. Yeah, yeah, nice, straightforward, and she, people should try it out. It's uh, I2P probably has clients from many other operating systems. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I've come across ITP a couple of times, uh, mostly project meetings at um, Chaos Communication Congress in Germany. Um, mm. And I never mm. really, I never had an introduction as straightforward as this to how to set it up and run the service. So it's, it's really cool. I, I love seeing articles where people are doing stuff on top of BSDs. Yeah, not just, hey, this is my install. This is the services that I'm running. And these are the things that people might be interested in. And they are not, oh, the the, um, the standard, oh, here's the lamp stack. Here's the, <laughs> you know what I mean? Do something that not everyone is doing that yeah. keeps people interested. Okay. Uh, next in the news, we have uh, a blog post by uh, Michael Lucas. Uh, he drops the W in his own name. Um, and he says that Git Sync Murder, oh, sorry, Dollar Git Sync Murder is out, which is the title of a book, which is out now that you should read. Uh, is out. So how many books have I written? Uh, and Michael writes, the hardcovers are in stores now, so I think it's official. Dollar, Git Sync, Murder is out everywhere, except my print bookstore. Okay. Uh, you can get it from all the usual stores, and I have ebooks in my store. Every time I release a new book or dare to show my face in public, you should stay inside. Uh, folks ask me how many books I've written. My answer is, define written and book. Uh, hmm. that's not as snarky as you might think. First, they're asking the wrong question. I've written many books that were not published and that you will never read. Immortal Clay didn't pick up a bunch of four and five star reviews by being the first novel I ever wrote. It got those by being my 15th finished novel in a series of deliberate practice that continues to this day and my first published novel. So let's change the question to how many books have you published? Here's the current output of the SNMP object where I keep my publications catalog because you're Michael W. Lucas and you do these things. Uh, accessing this object is an Easter egg in the network Nomicom or wherever you're still attached to your sanity SNMP mastery. Uh, and he's got a big table um, and it categorizes his books into an index, the title, year, and genre. And it starts with the first book, uh, Gatecrasher in 1992. And it rolls all the way down, I hope this is sorted by year, um, to, oh, I've never heard of this book, The Holiday Spectacular Number 2 in 2021, uh, just after Git Sync Murder. Uh, and other recent books are only footnotes. There's 86 mm. things with my name on the cover, in, excluding articles and periodicals and websites. I don't have the energy to go through all that stuff. Uh, so I've published 86 books, except... Some of these are stories and anthologies. Anthologies are written by multiple authors. They're only partially by me. Excluding those, the catalog has 70 entries. I've published 70 books. Except some of those are basically chap books, single stories put out in their own imprint. I have many more stories than these, by the way, 
but they're electronic only, and I ran out of energy before collecting all of that information. 47 things with my name on them are classified either as full length or novella. This categorization is incorrect, however. The word novella means short novel. The definition on novel has bloated over the last 150 years, driven by manufacturing concerns. Arthur Conan Doyle's first Sherlock Holmes novel, A Study in Scarlet, is about 43,000 words. Publishers would laugh at Doyle today and tell him to write a chapbook publisher based on the length alone. In the 1920s, a 20,000 word tale was considered a novel and might be published as such. I have a great big stack of Rex Stout mystery novels, and many of them contain fewer than 40,000 words. So let's take non-fiction novella Ed Mastery. It is a short book, but it's unquestionably a book. Alternatively, consider Drowned Miravar, the second Prohibition Orcs tale. It's over 30,000 words in the era it was set. It would be a full novel that would appear first in a magazine, then as a standalone book. Today, it's a prologue. It's packaged as it's packaged. It's a book. It would look fine on the shelf next to any of my 1950s novels. I think there's a hint there to buy his book. Um, hmm. Then there were collections. Vicious Redemption is a collection of my short stories. Aiden Redding, uh, Against the Universe, collects the short stories and novels. They're listed here as full length, which they certainly are. Should I? Should should I, could I, those as books? Well, I think there's a typo here. Surely there's a culturally accepted standard for, culturally accepted or industry standard on how to count the number of books you've written. No. Uh, Isaac Asimov established a standard that if I appear in it, it counts. He counted anthologies, he counted chat books. By that standard, I've published 86 books and I am uncomfortable with this definition. I know authors who won't count anything shorter than 60,000 words. By that standard, I've published 22 books. It excludes all of my mastery titles except SNMP Mastery. That's clearly not right for me either. For me, the original question is about milestones. It's about accomplishments. I want to be able to say I made this thing and stand by it. My preferred definition is, if I whack you with it, will it leave a mark? Bystanders (laughs) would object, however, and I've created some titles that while they'll leave a mark, I don't consider them independent books. An example would be the bail bond denied edition of FreeBSD Mastery Jails. It is literally the exact same text as the regular FreeBSD Mastery Jails, but with a hardcover, but with a cover drawn in crayon by yours truly. It's a thing. It gets offered up for charity auctions. I have a small amount of pride in it. It's not really a discrete book. So I'm trying this definition. 15,000 words or longer, requiring distinct and discrete effort to create, something I'm not embarrassed to call a book. This definition lets me exclude titles like ZFS Mastery of FreeBSD Advanced ZFS. You, you see the, the Canadian twirl I had to undo there. The, yeah. the Beck and Provost editions of Terrapin Sky Tango and the Manly McMahon face version of Ed Mastery. Only footnotes might have brand new footnotes in it, but it wasn't hard to make. It's excluded. Don't get me wrong, I'm proud of these, but only because they polish my reputation as the good sort of troll. I knock them all off in a morning. There's still a pic of me with one copy of every edition of everything I've written, because that's just for fun. It lets me exclude works like Ed Mastery and Clash Flow for creators. I spent three weeks writing the Cash Flow book and 30 years learning how to write the Cash Flow book. It includes volumes like the Network Nomicom, because producing that required a bunch of work. It was a different sort of labor for me, but that unspeakable to fine educational work is clearly distinct unique book 
I'm also counting collections again. How many books have you published question is about milestones. Writing enough of a thing to create a collection is a milestone. Aidan Reading Against the Universe is the closest thing to a Brandon Sanderson doorstop I've produced on the fiction side. Alas, the hardcover has two different covers, one on the dust jacket and one on a laminate, and they're both lovely. Oh, also, also they have two covers. Applying this definition leaves me with these titles, and we get to the magical number of 45. This makes Get Sync Murder my 45th book. Could this definition be gamed? Sure. Uh, I really want to congratulate Michael for writing so many books. I think yeah. if uh, if Dan can retire after 32 conferences, I think Michael can retire after 86 books. But uh, yeah, no, it's it, it's really impressive to see that he's been writing so consistently for so long. Yeah, especially. And in, in such a quality that people like me can understand his tech books without <laughs> needing another book to <laughs> fill in the blanks. <laughs> Benedict, you write technical, defini- technical documentation. I, I do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... The way he writes is that kept me going from his early days of Big Scary Daemons, I think it was, to just novels that he writes uh, these days. I, I haven't read even a third probably of his of any of his books, but um, it's definitely a, a big accomplishment. Which reminds me, we should have an interview on the show uh, again. We haven't had him in a while. Yeah, I, I think we have him have him coming up. Uh, it's stalled right now because he wants uh, me or Alan to come up with a competition to decide who will interview him. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I have my suggestion, and you can find out what how, how we decided by listening to the interview when we do it. We're still haggling, yeah. <laughs> Or you and Alan do it, and I'm. We're trying to we're trying staying. to figure out what sort of blood to use to draw the pentagram on the floor, but no one no one can agree. <laughs> I'm, go, I'm going for a <laughs> vegan alternative, but apparently that's a hipster or something. I don't know. Yeah, catch up. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll find out in a future episode. Um, yeah, so congratulations, Michael, and we look forward to forty five more books. Oh dear, I said it. <laughs> Okay, um, another one is uh, that GhostBSD did a voting recently about what init system would you prefer to use under GhostBSD. And here is the uh, article about it. Why this pool has uh, much as I, or as much as I like OpenRC, it comes as a price. All FreeBSD OS services and ports packages services must be maintained and new ones to be added. So on that note, we would like your vote on which uh, one you prefer before making a drastic decision. So they did that a while ago. And is that still running? Could be. Well, at the moment, it's at the time of this recording, it's FreeBSD RC versus OpenRC. And uh, like FreeBSD's RC is rc.d. And this has 68 percent of 217 votes versus openrc with 32 percent and 104 votes okay that's quite uh clear i think at, at the point of this i mean this could change after people listen to this episode and if the poll is still on then you can totally change that again um yeah but i think it makes well, sense i mean there's a lot yeah. of work um and i think if a user is a desktop if every time you google you have to ignore the freebsd documentation to get services running it's probably really annoying Mm, you just to figure out what system I'm on. S- yeah. Sadly trapped by the 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 weight of of support that's available, rather than anything else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's. I mean, for the project like GhostBSD, they also have to pool their resources and figure out where the work should go. And if uh, 
rewriting an init system just because they can is not a worthwhile effort that could be put somewhere else in uh, the distribution. But yeah, interesting to, to get this um, get this vote and how many people responded. And um, the it's still not set in stone, right? It's it's an init system that's been around for a while. Other init systems are there that have other features. Um, you never know what comes along and what people uh, pick in, or the developers pick at, at the end. Um, yeah, so before we go into feedback and questions, we should mention our sponsor for this week, and that has been covered earlier in the episode already, uh, Tarsnap. And it and it wasn't a negative um, report per se. It's just a way how to use Tarsnap in a different way to, in this case, back up your system and move it to another one. And Tarsnap allows it because, well, it's a backup service and it's an encrypted backup service. But the encryption starts not on some you know, provider's encryption while the data is copied unencrypted over the network. No, Tarsnap encrypts locally with a key that you decide and not the, the backup uh, provider. Maybe that provider has just one key for everyone. No, you create your own keys and your keys stay on your machine and that encrypts the data on your machine. And only then when you have encrypted all the data, it goes out into the Tarsnap servers, uh, which are on AWS. And there they sit encrypted. No one else can look at it. Uh, and then when you need it, hopefully never, but if you do, then you can use your personal key on your system to download and unencrypt them again. Various clients are available for Tarsnap, uh, for the Unix-like operating systems, BSDs, Linux, macOS. There's a Windows client available, uh, plenty of good documentation you should read before doing any kind of uh, really real-time backup changes that um, could destroy various things uh, if you kill the original machine this came from <laughs> but you listen to our article and know what to do now read the documentation try it out for yourself charge up with a small amount into your tarsnap account like ten dollars or even five if you have a small file to backup that's plenty of um, backup storage and then tarsnap runs for you and if you set a cron job for yourself the documentation also tells you how to do that or if you just want to know how much will this cost me before actually doing it there's a dry run option that you can simulate how much it would cost and then you can make better estimates how much you would have to pay but you will find out that tarsnet pricing is very competitive to other providers and um, it's, it's easy and uh, quite straightforward to use so check out tarsnap and see it for your backup needs and if you already have a backup well Having a second backup never hurts anyone. Just for the fateful day when you need the other backup. All right, time for feedback and questions this week. Uh, we have the first one starting from Brad about uh, replication. And Brad writes, Hi Alan, JT, Benedict and Tom. Excellent, the, the whole band together. Uh, in order of arrival on BSD now. Well, then you have to have put Chris Chris Morrisdale for completeness sake. But yeah, <laughs> I see where this is going. Great. Uh, so he has a FreeBS laptop and desktop, both running 13 release. Okay. Both are running snapshots out of cron using ZFS tools. Great. Uh, so I have a year of snapshots on both machines. And when I set up ZFS tools, I turn off snapshotting in places where I thought I wouldn't need them. Like, uh, oh, some IOKH download directories uh, or the IOKH release directory. Yeah, because that can always be downloaded. User ports. Yeah, you don't need that. Slash temp. Mm. Uh, 
could be, could be not. War crash, yeah, and war temp also. Uh, basically things that are A, likely to take up excess space, or B, freely available on the internet, so downloading is uh, easy enough. So I'm only snapshotting certain data sets, which leads to my problem. I'm trying to do a pull replication from a desktop and laptop to my true NAS box. As an example, I have snapshots of the following data sets. So um, yeah, he has provided a couple of examples with machine names here and some uh, things like home directories and uh, IOCage templates, jail directories, test boxes. Okay, I know that if I could set up 18 different replication tasks on a true NAS box, but is there a way to combine that into one task and push or pull all of the data sets in one operation? Somebody on the forum suggested using Syncoid, but that isn't going to work because Syncoid doesn't ship on TrueNAS. Can I get your suggestions on this? I've never used TrueNAS. Uh, yeah, if it's TrueNAS specific, I would have mentioned, um, oh, what was the name um, of the backup tool uh, that we used earlier or we wanted to uh, feature one more time because there was recently a, a backup or a new release. Uh, what's it called? It's currently missing out of my mind where what was the name um ah, gee we have to cut here <laughs> you you can yeah you can't wait that long uh sorry it slipped my mind i can't think of it right now um alan would know so he says there's not just one replication solution out there for ZFS. I mean, there's the built-in one always, uh, but people have built a number of clients to probably solve exactly this problem uh, out there. And there's a couple of them in the uh, package ports collection. And, but for TrueNAS specific ones, you would probably have to hit the TrueNAS forums because I'm fairly sure people have solved this there because they are in the same <laughs> problem space. Uh, so you all want to have... Uh, one task instead of 18 different ones yeah uh, i know it's doable and people have built clients about this but again i'm totally blank on the name of the of the tool right now alan would have this in like a snap but yeah um try the TrueNAS forums or the freebsd forums even uh there's probably uh someone who knows sorry couldn't help <laughs> if yeah it sometimes uh, uh, comes after, as soon as I hit the um, the not record anymore button, then it will come back. <laughs> oh, okay, so the next piece of feedback we have is from Caleb. Uh, Caleb writes, hey all, which is a way to cover us. Uh, thanks for all your years of awesome content. Well, you're, you're very welcome, Caleb. Thank you. Uh, in episode 406, there was a lot of discussion of how to pronounce gem pronounce Gemini, I mean, I've said it now, so I've given it away. Uh, here's the Cambridge Dictionary's take on it, and they link to the Cambridge Dictionary that has pronunciation in English and American, and they both say Gemini. Um, the Ge the, I'm, ah. I'm sure the Gemini one comes from how people referred to the, the Gemini program inside NASA. The capsule? Yeah, mm. I'm sure it was like, that, that, that is where the confusion comes from. But yeah, G Gemini is pretty clear for me. But, but th yeah, thank you very much German, for the feedback, Caleb. Yeah, why didn't we think of that? I mean, it's all these dictionaries out there now that can pronounce things. Who, who knew there were dictionaries on the internet? <laughs> it's, a, it's a new thing, I guess. Just, yeah, just around the corner. Uh, it, it, is it? Well, Gemini in German? No, we would probably translate this even. Ah, so you would say it as an English <laughs> word. 
probably yeah if we if we can't make up our own word then we we steal from <laughs> <laughs> the one the, the countries around us uh at least the words and you know us and uk are um good candidates for okay <laughs> and, and stealing. Our, our last piece of feedback comes from dan uh dan says hello bsd now folks here is a little write-up regarding an issue I had with a digital ocean FreeBSD droplet that was no longer reachable. I hope that other people may find it useful as well. And he and he's provided a, a link to a gist on GitHub. This is a GitHub gist that I may edit over time and people can lead feedback and ideas. Thanks for the show and stay safe. Hear you soon, Dan. Thanks, Dan, for giving us this feedback. It's really nice to get... Uh, I mean, this is basically an article. You could have just... Uh, yeah, it could it be a main... Stably. Uh, so the gist has uh, Dan saying, one of my DO droplets was no longer reachable. It was powered on. I could see it in the console in the DO web UI, but I had only set up the system to allow logging in via SSH or a key. I tried recovering from a few backups. Weekly backups were set up, but none of them did the trick. It's nothing too important. Just my personal blog that could really use another entry by now, but you got distracted. Uh, and, by, and a little page introducing myself. Anyway, these notes may help some other people uh, and he walks through the process of um, using Grub and booting into single user, I think, um, and, and doing some config and bringing the network back up and making sure everything looks okay. And it's uh, it's really nice to see. Thank you, Dan, for this feedback. It's mm. really nice. Yeah, it's part of the show notes now. And uh, as soon as, as long as the the uh, the gist lives, it's part of this show as another tutorial. Great, wonderful. And uh, anything more? No, I think that's it for today. And yeah, thank you for listening as always. Thank you for your nice feedback. Uh, more feedback, always welcome on the feedback at bsdnow.tv email address. And uh, anything else, topics, show ideas, comments of various kinds can be sent there as well. Thank you, Tom, as well. Oh, thank you, Benedict. It's always great to talk about BSD with you. <laughs> right and recorded while we're doing it <laughs> oh, we recorded this oh oh whoops oh, no. didn't i tell you 